So this morning, uh, we come finally, for us after a couple of years now, to Jesus' betrayal and his arrest in in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is the hour that we've often spoken of. The, The hour is the language that John uses. We've been anticipating since the beginning of the gospel, and now it's here. So if we Recall John chapter 1, we know that the eternal Word, who was God and who was with God, makes you just want to go back and preach that again. What a mystery, what a glorious, wonderful mystery revealed to us. But that eternal Word became flesh. Why did He become flesh? So that He might die as one of us, not only as one of us, but in our place. So from our vantage point here today, we can look back and we can read John and we can see this hour that we come to this morning anticipated on every single page and every single verse of the Gospel of John. It's it's been anticipated for the last two years, right, as we've gone through this. And so what we come to this morning is really the beginning of, and here's a word, that I've been excited to use for the first time ever for myself. Here we come to the denouement of John. So let me, let me give the definition of denouement. It's the final part of a narrative in which the strands of the plot are drawn together and matters are explained or resolved. It's the climax of a chain of events when something is made clear. And so it's only in the light of these sufferings that we come to now, it's only in the light of these sufferings of this death of our Lord that all of John's gospel to this point can be fully understood. Here is then the denouement of John. We come this morning to the beginning of that, in the very real sense of all of redemptive history. So John chapter 18, verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, which we have spent so many weeks now uh, immersing ourselves in, when he had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples to the other side of the brook, Kidron. Now, before we go any further, I just want to say that this account of Jesus' betrayal of his arrest in the garden, it's in all four Gospels. Very little of what's in John is in all the other Gospels. Um, But his arrest and his betrayal in the garden, that's in all four, of course. Um, And yet John tells the story in his own way. All the Gospel writers have their own unique little things, but John really goes his own way. He leaves out a lot of things the other Gospels include, and he includes a whole lot of things that the other Gospels leave out. Only John tells us that Jesus went out with his disciples to the other side of the brook Kidron. And so at one level, that's just a geographical note. And why do we like geographical notes? Because it tells us it really happened. This is not some fictional, theologically invented story to make a moral, right? This happened at real space and real time in real history. And so we can look at just a few pictures here. I don't know, hopefully that's visible, not very much to me. But the light, the light maybe is tough. Oh, that's not really good at all. Can you see it? Okay, all right. So you can see there's the city of Jerusalem, the Dome of the Rock. Um, which has been there for a thousand years. This this is a painting of Jerusalem as it was in the 18th, uh, 19th century, I think. And you can see the ravine. Jerusalem is built on a lower-lying hill, and it's surrounded by taller mountains. So Jerusalem's built on a hill, but it's surrounded by much bigger hills and taller mountains. So you see there's Jerusalem. You see the ravine that goes pretty steeply down into the into the, the where there's the brook Kidron would run at the bottom of that. And then this is being taken from the Mount of Olives 
So uh, the Mount of Olives is a very long, length, lengthwise kind of a mountain um, that's right across the valley. So this is, this is very much how it might have looked, really, at, at the time, maybe if Jesus was crossing the brook Kidron with his disciples. We can go to the next picture. And again, I am not seeing things well here, but um, you can see there's the wall of the old city, Jerusalem. Um, and there's the Mount of Olives to the right. And then you see the, the sloping uh, ravine down to the brook Kidron in the middle. And then the next picture, this is much more, this is recent, this is, this is today. Oh, standing on the Mount of Olives looking, you can see all the terraces on the other side. Um, those terraces, of course, are, weren't there uh, 100, 200 years ago. But those, those have gradated the, the, the slope down to the Brook Kidron again. So that's as you would see it today. Um, not sure if the next picture is really the best one to be on, but it's the most like it might have looked when Jesus was there. So we'll stick with that one for a minute. Uh, the, the Greek word for brook actually refers to a winter torrent. That's what it's literally would be translated. So basically, you, you would better translate it, the Wadi Kidron. Wadi being uh, a water channel that only flows in the rainy season. Uh, it's dry the rest of the year. So since the rainy season in Israel is winter from October to April, and since if you are following the chronology here of Passover time, we know what time of the year it is. It's March, April. So it's the end of the rainy season. The, any of the, the rains are slowing down, but probably still it's likely there was water in the channel when Jesus crosses with his disciples. All right, so at one level, it's just telling us it really happened. This is for real in real history, but could there also be a deeper level of significance. In the Old Testament, the brook Kidron marked the territory in your handout outside of Jerusalem. So when Josiah is cleansing the temple, we read, he brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord outside Jerusalem. And you can imagine that even from the picture behind, behind me to the brook Kidron, and burned it at the brook Kidron. Two verses earlier, and I, I, I think this is all in your handout, but I couldn't leave parts of it out. I don't know, is this all in your handout? Everything? Okay, so you can either read along or just listen, and then it's there for your resource at home. But two verses earlier, we're told Josiah burned the vessels associated with idol worship outside Jerusalem, in the fields of the Kidron. Hezekiah did the same thing. Asa did the same thing. Kidron is mentioned. Then we read in Jeremiah, Behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when the city will be rebuilt for Yahweh, and the whole valley of the dead bodies and of the ashes. That would be the valley of Hinnom, which is on the south side of Jerusalem, not the east side. So the valley of Hinnom runs along the south. It runs into the Kidron Valley, which runs along the east. So he's talking about that valley where they had engaged in a lot of idol worship and dead bodies had been thrown there and all sorts of other things. And all the fields, as far as the brook Kidron, um, north to the corner of the horse gate toward the east, shall be holy to Yahweh. And so again, the point here is that even the territory right outside of Jerusalem where there have been dead bodies thrown, where the ashes of idolatrous objects have been cast, even that territory right outside Jerusalem is going to be holy to the Lord. Um, there are only two other places in the Old Testament where the brook Kidron is referred to by name. So we get the idea now Kidron is a boundary marker for Jerusalem. Kidron is outside Jerusalem. That's the point. It's outside Jerusalem. Two other places where Kidron is referred to. The author of Kings tells us what happened to a man named Shimei when Solomon became king. Then the king sent and called for Shimei and said to him, Build for yourself a house in Jerusalem and live there. And you have to remember, Jerusalem was not a big city here, and it was walled. So it would get a bit claustrophobic living in Jerusalem and not going anywhere else. 
Uh, but that's what Solomon told him he had to do. And do not go out from there to any place. Now it will be on the day you go out and cro- go out of what? Jerusalem and cross over the brook Kidron that you will know for certain that you shall surely die. Now, I don't know if any of you noticed a little problem here. The brook Kidron ran along which side of Jerusalem? The east side. It didn't run along any other side. So if you want to get out of Jerusalem, how many ways can you get out? Right? Four different directions. Solomon clearly is telling Shimei, don't leave the city, period. But he specifies the brook Kidron. I think it's a reminder, and by the way, Shimei, of course, as we know the story, did go out of Jerusalem. He, I would guess, did not cross the brook Kidron because Kidron's to the east. He went west to go get some slaves that ran away. So he went west, did not cross the brook. In case, if he thought he was going to get by on the letter of the law, he was mistaken. And I think he knew it very well that he would not. But this is a reminder. Why does Solomon mention the brook Kidron? Because it's a reminder of why he's passing this sentence on Shimei in the first place. And so we come to the main point. The guilt of Shimei. What did he do? He had cursed Solomon's father, David, when David was fleeing out of the city of Jerusalem. Because his son Absalom was conspiring against him. And which direction did David flee when Shimei was cursing him? Well, we, even if we didn't know, we could guess he fled east, crossing the brook Kidron. So we read in 2 Samuel chapter 15, So the king went out. Out of where? Out of the city, right? And all his household with him. And the king, repeats now this word again, went out. And all the people with him. While all the country was weeping with a loud voice, all the people passed over. The king also, this is the last time that the word, this word is ever used in the Old Testament, of all the times we've just looked at. The king also passed over the brook Kidron. And all the people passed over toward the way of the wilderness. Matthew says that Jesus came to a place called Gethsemane. Period. All of a sudden, he's in Gethsemane. Luke says, and coming out, he went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. John mentions neither Gethsemane nor the Mount of Olives, but says he went out. It's a common word. You don't want to read too much into a word as common as that word for went out. But in this context, there's a weight, there's a significance to that word that it would not have elsewhere, especially when we go on to read that he went out where of the city with his disciples to the other side of the brook Kidron. In light then of all the Old Testament background, is it possible there's more here than just a geographical reference to crossing a water course? David, we know, was a type. The Greek word is tupas of of Christ. I just want to tell you, so what's a type? Uh, A type, we could spend a whole lesson on this, I guess, but a type is an event or a person in the Old Testament that, that is divinely intended, not that we invent, right? Okay, because we could all be like, oh, I think this is a cool little analogy to that. So there's a type. No, a type is divinely intended. And a, a divinely intended correspondence between a person or event in the Old Testament and, and, and its antitype, which is Christ. So God designs history, redemptive history in particular, in such a way that events and persons in the Old Testament um, point towards and are fulfilled 
in Christ and, and the events surrounding his incarnation and his life and death and burial on this earth. Um, Jesus takes the prayers of David on his own lips and sees that they are fulfilled in himself. Jesus is David's son, right? But not just David's son, he is his greater son. So Jesus takes David's prayers, he prays them, and he finds, he finds in those prayers the ultimate expression of his own experiences. Now, we're going to find that there are similarities, but the similarities highlight the differences. Okay? Because sometimes we'll say, well, how is David a type of Christ? I mean, he was a sinner. He was a failure. He committed adultery. He murdered Uriah. Well, that's the beauty of it. Because, because David, as the royal king, is the father of Jesus, his royal descendant. So we see then there's a continuity. There's, and he's a type of Christ. But his son is his greater son. And so the similarities will highlight the differences and show us how indeed Jesus is greater. So the apostles see the experiences of the royal psalmist fulfilled in the experiences of his greater royal son, Jesus. All the time. This is all over. The innocent sufferings of David are fulfilled where? In the innocent sufferings of his greater son, Jesus. The, the, the vindication and the triumphs of David on the field of battle, right? Where are they fulfilled? In the vindication and triumphs of his greater son, Jesus. Now, it is this established, biblically established, typological relationship, okay? A correspondence between David and Jesus that allows me and allows us to ask if there is not also a divinely intended we have to be careful that we don't invent and make things up in our fanciful ideas a divinely intended typological connection between David's going out from the city of Jerusalem and crossing of the brook Kidron and Jesus going out from the city of Jerusalem and crossing of the brook Kidron. One thousand years later, brothers and sisters, I just want to tell you that not only is this going to uh, hold before us the beauty of our Redeemer in a wonderful way, but it also helps us to see the infinite wisdom of God in his, in his planning of redemptive history. That hundreds and thousands of years before Jesus came, God was patterning forth the redemption he would bring through Jesus. It's, there are no words to describe it. So, David, why was David fleeing the city? Because his own son was seeking his life. The circumstances of Jesus mirror those of David. Jesus' own people have rejected him. How does John chapter 1 begin? John chapter 1 verse 12, he came to his own, verse 11, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. The Jews themselves are seeking Jesus' life, but now there's the correspondence. But unlike David, Jesus, 1,000 years later, leaving Jerusalem, crossing the brook, brook Kidron, on the night he will be killed, the night before, he is not fleeing. David's greater son went out from the city not to escape, but rather to meet his betrayer and hand himself over to those who would bind him. As David was fleeing, he was informed on his way that his own trusted counselor, Ahithophel, his trusted counselor, had betrayed him and was among the conspirators with Absalom, his 
his son who is seeking his life. Maybe this is what David referred to in Psalm 41 when David writes, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, he had trusted Ahithophel, who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Remember that verse. When David heard of Ahithophel's betrayal as he was fleeing Jerusalem, he said, O Yahweh, I pray, make the counsel of Ahithophel foolishness. Once again, the circumstances of Jesus mirror those of David. And, and brothers and sisters, God in his infinite, inconceivable sovereignty has scripted history so that it would foreshadow David's greater son. Jesus is being betrayed by one of his own disciples, by, by one who ate his own bread. So Jesus said to his disciples in John chapter 13, as David's greater son, taking David's verse and applying it to himself, I do not speak about all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread. Now, David was talking about his bread, but Jesus says, no, that's fulfilled in me, David's greater son. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. David betrayed by Hithophel, Jesus betrayed by Judas, both of them having eaten their bread. Now we see the parallels again, and yet the parallels highlight the differences. Unlike David, his greater son did not need to be informed on the way out of Jerusalem that Judas was betraying him. He knew who would betray him from the beginning, Jesus says. And unlike David, his greater son did not pray that God would thwart the designs of his betrayer. It wasn't wrong for David to do that. But Jesus was different. He, in fact, told Judas to do what he did quickly. And later, he went out purposefully to meet his betrayer. Ahithophel was the betrayer of David, but when he saw that his conspiracy would fail, he saddled his donkey and arose and went to his home, to his city, and set his house in order and hung himself. The Greek word, aponko. Judas was the betrayer of Jesus. But when he saw that his conspiracy was succeeding, he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And he threw the pieces of silver into the sanctuary and departed, and he went away and hung himself. Ahithophel hung himself, believing David would live and triumph, and he was right. Judas hung himself, believing that a misguided Jesus was ruined and defeated. But he was wrong. When David gave Ittai the Gittite, who was a foreigner and in exile, so he was a Gittite, not an Israelite, he was more of a, of a Philistine from that area. So David gave him the freedom to return back to his own place. David's like, I don't want to drag you into my troubles and my problems here. You've been a faithful servant, but go back to your own place. And when he encouraged him to do so, Ittai answered the king and said, As Yahweh lives and as my Lord the king lives, surely wherever my Lord the king may be, whether for death or for life, there also your servant will be. I will die with you. Whether to live or die, I will stay with you. David's greater son received similar vows of loyalty from his disciples on the night of his betrayal. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you, 
Peter sounds just like Ittai. And indeed, all the disciples said the same thing, too. But in the end, while David could depend on Ittai the Gittite, who was faithful, the disciples of Jesus, David's greater son, all left him and fled. It was when David was descending the further, the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives, so David went down out of Jerusalem, crossed the brook Kidron, went up the slopes of the Mount of Olives, and now David is descending the further side of the Mount of Olives, fleeing from Absalom, his son, that Shimei, who we met earlier, came out and was cursing continually. Get out, get out, you man of bloodshed and vile fellow. Yahweh has returned upon you all the bloodshed of the house of Saul. So he's, Shimei was a Benjaminite, which was the tribe Saul was from. So Shimei is saying that David was ruling illegitimately the entire time. The throne belongs to a Benjaminite, not to a, someone from the tribe of Judah. And so Shimei is saying that Yahweh himself, God himself, is now cursing David for even sitting on the throne. He has returned upon you all the bloodshed of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned, and Yahweh has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. And behold, you are taken in your own evil. What does Isaiah say about the servant, the suffering servant? That we all considered he was stricken by God and afflicted. That it was for his own sins he was suffering. And we see that in Matthew 27, that David's greater son, Jesus, received the same treatment David received from Shimei while he was hanging on the cross. Those passing by were blaspheming him. And Jesus, we know, hung outside the city, not not on the Mount of Olives, but they were shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the sanctuary and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he delights in him. Implication, God does not delight in him and God is judging him for his own sin. For he said, I am the son of God. While Shimei was cursing David, one of David's mighty men, Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, he says to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me pass over now and remove his head. But David answered, What have I to do with you, O sons of Zeruiah? If he curses, and if Yahweh has told him, Curse David, then who shall say, Why have you done so? And indeed, Yahweh had told Shimei to curse David. No, he had not told him, Shimei, go curse David. But David recognizes that God is sovereign in this moment. And that, in in fact, David had this coming. And so David is submitting himself to the sovereignty of God and the cursing of Shimei at that moment as he flees his son Absalom. So David says, let him alone and let him curse, for Yahweh has told him. Did that, let, did that let Shimei off the hook? No. Shimei was guilty for what he did, even though Yahweh told him to curse. One thousand years later, at this same location, just on the other side of the Mount of Olives, a disciple named Peter defended David's greater son by drawing his sword and striking the servant of the high priest, following in the steps of Abishai. But Jesus said to Peter, much as we heard David say to Abishai, put the sword into the sheath. 
the cup which the Father has given me. Shall I not drink it? David said to Abishai, Yahweh has told him to curse. Jesus said to Peter, The Father has given me this cup. So just like David submitted himself to the will of God, so does Jesus. But unlike, unlike David, the cup that the Father has given David's greater son to drink is infinitely more bitter. So, David was in one sense a righteous sufferer. We ask, why do bad things happen to good people? That's what's happening here. David David was a righteous sufferer. He was righteous, but not because he was without sin. It was because of David's adultery with Bathsheba, it was because of his murder of Uriah that he was suffering all these consequences. Right? The Lord said to David through the prophet Nathan, this is what he said to him, The sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. So how is David righteous in this? He's only getting what God said he would. David was righteous, not because he was without sin, but because he confessed and acknowledged his sin and and humbled himself and received without complaint the consequences of his sin. It was only, therefore, as a righteous sufferer. If David was not righteous in this, if he was not a righteous sufferer, He could not have entrusted himself to the one who judges how. How does God judge? Righteously. The only hope in standing before a righteous judge is to be righteous. Not righteous in the sense of perfect, but righteous in the sense of having acknowledged and confessed our sins. And seeking then to walk by faith. So David entrusted himself to the one who judged righteously when he said to Abishai, Perhaps Yahweh will look on my affliction and return good to me instead of Shimei's cursing this day. And so we see that David is a type of Jesus who was the ultimate righteous sufferer. David's greater son was righteous not because he confessed his sins, not not because he acknowledged his sin, but because he was without sin. So do you see, there's a perfect example of how typology works. David and Jesus were both righteous sufferers, but in different ways. And indeed, David's greater son, suffered not just exile from Jerusalem. Jesus will be hung outside the city. David is pursued, or fleeing, outside the city. But Jesus will suffer not just that exile, not just the threat of a temporal death, but the full curse of the law our sins deserved. It was only then, as the ultimate righteous sufferer that Jesus could entrust himself to the one who judges righteously. Christ committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, who being reviled did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself, even as David did his royal lesser father, 1,000 years before, he kept entrusting himself to one who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. So we don't have it up there now. We don't need to go back and find it. But if we had the picture of Jerusalem and the Brook Kidron 
I, I want you to see, it's almost as though you can see about 1000 BC, David, the king, fleeing Jerusalem, crossing the brook Kidron. And you see all the constellation of events surrounding that crossing of the brook Kidron. And then you see a thousand years later, in the same exact spot, David's greater son crossing the brook Kidron. And you know all the constellation of events that will surround his greater son, Jesus. And you see the one superimposed on the other, and you see in this the glory and the greatness of the greater son. David's crossing of the brook Kidron as he fled from Absalom, his son, is now taken up and fulfilled in Jesus' crossing of the brook Kidron on the night of his betrayal. David certainly could never have known. But I might conjecture he knows now. What did his weeping, as he went over the Mount of Olives, what did the cursing of Shimei, what did the betrayal of Ahithophel, what did his words about Yahweh has told him to curse, what did all of that mean David did not know? We see the parallels, and yet the parallels highlight the differences. And so, in your handout, it's the fulfillment that brings into clearer focus how Jesus truly is, not just David's son, but his, and this is the word, brothers and sisters, that we love, his greater son. So now we pick up again in John chapter 18, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples to the other side of the brook Kidron, as a king before him did, where there was a garden into which he entered with his disciples. Matthew, Mark tell us that this garden was called Gethsemane. John does not tell us this. But Gethsemane is a name that means olive press. So likely then, almost certainly, this was an olive orchard with a stone mill on site. Probably a, It was probably a whole operation there. You had all the tools for grinding and crushing the olives and for pressing and separating. It all would have been there. And the fact that Jesus entered into this garden, it says, and later it says he went out of the garden, tells us almost 100% certain it was a walled enclosure. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often gathered there with his disciples. So what this was, as a walled enclosure outside the city of Jerusalem, it's a place of retreat. It offered privacy. It's walled, right? It's a garden. It's, it's an orchard. It was probably provided for Jesus' use by a believing Jew. So Jesus often went here for retreat. Judas knows the place. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there. And again, I'm reading all of this against the backdrop of David and his story. And we see the differences and it shines out the brighter. They came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Now, John does not tell us anything about the agony of Jesus. The sweat drops his blood. And he tells us nothing about all his prayers. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. He tells us nothing about his exhortations to Peter and James and himself when they couldn't stay awake. Now, he's not hiding those things. He knows the other gospel writers have included them. John is just including only those things that emphasize Jesus' sovereign authority and control over all that happens. Unlike David, why did the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees come? Why did they bring lanterns and torches? 
when it was a full moon that night. We know it's a full moon because Passover happens at full moon. And, you know, the, the reality is, if you've ever been out on a full moon night, not even your flashlight is really of any help. Certainly not torches. So why do they bring torches on full moon? Well, maybe it was cloudy, but there's someone suggested since we know it was cold, likely it wasn't cloudy. It could be cold and cloudy, but just as likely, they know where they're going. They know they're going into a walled enclosure full of trees. Where it's darker, there's lots of shadows. Maybe they wanted to quickly flush Jesus out of hiding, keep him from escaping over the wall, right? They also brought weapons in the event that there's armed resistance, that once Jesus is found in the garden and cornered, there might be violent resistance. And in the end, what do we know? All the lanterns, you should have left the lanterns at home. All the torches, they're a waste of your energy. And all the weapons, unneeded, unnecessary. Because John tells us what the other gospel writers do not tell us. So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, as David did not, went out of the garden and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. Now likely it's at this point Judas kissed Jesus, though John does not record anything about that. Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So for John, Judas, he's irrelevant. He's just with them now, and he's irrelevant. So when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. John leaves out the kiss of Judas. Why? Because the kiss was unnecessary. The kiss was necessary because it shows the betrayal and it shows the fulfillment of David's sufferings and betrayal and the the betrayal and sufferings of Jesus. But that's not the point John is making. John is making the point that Jesus is in control. And so he leaves out the kiss of Judas. It was unnecessary because of the sovereign self-identification of Jesus that Jesus went out of the city to meet his betrayer. Why did Jesus leave the city? Not just to go have a private retreat. He went out there to meet someone. Who did Jesus go out to meet? Judas. Jesus went out of the city to meet his betrayer. And John rather brings this out when he says that Jesus uses the same word a second time. He went out of the garden And he said to those who come to arrest him, Whom do you seek? The picture seems to be Jesus knew they were coming, and so he walked out of the garden to meet them. When they answered, Jesus the Nazarene, Jesus said, I am he. Now he's not just identifying himself as the one they're looking for. At a deeper level, what's he saying? I'm the one who am who I say I am. He is the one who is who he says he is. Not just the Nazarene, the one they're looking for. Yes, he is the Nazarene. But he is the revelation of the Father, God incarnate. I am he. Now, there's no theophany here, okay? I, I read this, and every time I read this, I was kind of thinking, I wonder if like something happened, like some bright light all of a sudden. No, there's no theophany here. There's no sudden unveiling of his glory. There's no thundering voice from heaven. The Jesus who says, I am he, brothers and sisters, allow me to read Matthew, Mark, and Luke into this. 
The Jesus who says, I am he, is the Nazarene. He's the same Jesus who just a few minutes earlier was falling to the ground on his knees in a great agony of distress. It's the same Jesus. And yet the unexpected sight of Jesus coming out to meet them. They don't have to go in and flush him out. Of Jesus' unexpected questioning where he initiates the questioning. Who are you seeking? And the unexpected power and authority of his self-identification so unnerved and overwhelmed. Those who had come to arrest Jesus, they drew back and fell to the ground. In other words, something is not right here. Not for them, anyway. Therefore he again asked them, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus, the Nazarene, Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way. In order that the word which he spoke would be fulfilled of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. John does not tell us what all the other gospel writers tell us that all the disciples left Jesus and fled. He doesn't tell us that. Why? Because for John, it's irrelevant to his point. What does he tell us? What all the other gospel writers don't tell us. Jesus commanded those who had come to arrest him to let his disciples go their way. Yes, they fled, but That's irrelevant to this point at hand. Who is in control? It's in the hour of his suffering that we see as clearly as anywhere else the sovereign authority of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, does the sovereign authority of Jesus lessen his suffering? No. Indeed, I could only see it makes it all the more difficult It's in the hour of his suffering that we see his power to guard and preserve his disciples. Because they still couldn't understand. So he knew they weren't ready to face the ultimate test, which is made clear in what happens next. Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? It strikes me that on the night of his betrayal and arrest, the only commands are issued by Jesus. Let these go their way. It wasn't a suggestion. It wasn't just, I hope you'll do it. It was, let these go their way. In order that he might lose not one of those whom the Father had given him. Second command. Put the sword into the sheath. In order that he might drink the cup that the Father had given him to drink. So the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. They did, but did they really? David, the righteous sufferer, went out from Jerusalem and crossed the brook Kidron, fleeing. David's greater son, the ultimate righteous sufferer, went out from Jerusalem and crossed the brook Kidron, 
not fleeing. He was the only one that night who was truly in control. And yet this sovereign authority of Jesus that he has was all in the service of his obedient submission to the Father's will. It's this sovereign authority of Jesus, then, that will direct his steps all the way to the cross. As I sat back and just reflected on this this week, I just asked myself the question, which I now ask you, and it's not rhetorical, you don't have to answer out loud, but I mean you to think about it. Think about it honestly. Who else? Who else? ever lived and died like Jesus lived and died. Now, when you take me seriously and you think about that, then I think we can say, he is the one before whom we bow and worship. He is the one We love. Now, if we're serious about that, then we know how to answer this question and we prove it in the daily living of our lives, right? How then should we live? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, let us not be, let us not be hypocrites. Let us not be empty professors of Christ. Let us not live some modernized, Americanized version of Christianity. Let us live as those who have seen the true power, beauty, and sovereign authority of our Redeemer who laid his life down for us. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.